We are, uh, we're in a series called Rebuilding, right? If there was ever a season that we needed to rebuild, it's certainly this one. Um, and not just, not just from a big macro level, right? From a big picture level, but from a lot of individual levels. I mean, listen, COVID and all of this, uh, racial tension, social injustice, rioting, looting, uh, the politics, election, you throw a rock and you can hit an issue, right? Our nation is suffering and it's not just suffering at a high level. It's suffering at the lowest level possible in people's lives and homes. Uh, you've heard pastor Joe say it, uh, tons of pastors are saying it. Listen, the stag- the statistics are staggering divorces on the rise, right? Addiction is on the rise. Um, every, every possible coping mechanism there is up to and including the out people are taking them, right? There are still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who haven't qualified for any unemployment, don't have any money, aren't able to pay their bills. Stress is an all time high. And the reality is we're in a spiritual attack more than anything. And so people are ripe for the picking. And so for me, the idea of Nehemiah and rebuilding seemed fitting for so many of us because at some level, that's what many of us need to do. Whether it's, listen, whether it's a direct result of what took place with COVID and, and what's taking place uh, in our world today uh, since, since the George Floyd uh, death, um, or whether it's taking place because of the upcoming election and politics, for many of you, many of you watching online, whatever the issue is that needs to be rebuilt was was something that started a year ago, five years ago. You're still trying to rebuild from a loss. You're still trying to rebuild from a broken relationship. You're still trying to rebuild from a betrayal. And if that's the case, listen, there's no better time than right now to begin that process. Because your story, my story, listen, our stories have power because they're our story, right? But at some level, your story isn't going to change until you decide with God to begin to change it, right? At some level, there's got to be personal responsibility of the individual begin to put into practice principles of faith that will allow us to rebuild our lives. Because here's the thing, your story in the past can't change. There's nothing about your past And there's nothing about your story that can be altered from five years ago, 10 years ago, five minutes ago, 10 days ago. There's nothing about your story in the past that can be changed backward. And everything about your story that can be changed moving forward. But to do that, man, you're going to have to step into some action, some action points to begin to implement that change. We started last week with Nehemiah and we talked, if you haven't. If you didn't hear it, listen, all of the sermons, whether it's weekend, whether it's Tuesday with Pastor Ben or it's Wednesday, all those sermons are available online. They're available on iTunes. Um, but we talked about Nehemiah. Listen, if you're going to rebuild, the first thing that's going to have to happen is you're going to have to experience some brokenness. You're going to have to have a personal response about what's happening, right? Whether that's individually or whether that's collectively, there's got to be a personal response, right? Nehemiah, it says, wept and mourned and prayed and fasted for days, right? 
Listen, there's no way to rebuild without our recognition of true brokenness. Spiritually, Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit for they'll see God. Right? Without true brokenness, without true brokenness for your marriage, without true brokenness for your family, without true brokenness for your finance, without true brokenness about your past, right? Unless there is true brokenness, there's no rebuilding. You've got to have a personal response. But listen, being personally broken isn't enough. Some of you have been broken and you continue to be broken. Because the next thing that Nehemiah did was he spiritually responded. Listen, we've got to have a spiritual assessment about what's going on. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, what's in line? I want to hear, I want to hear you say amen. amen. Right? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, nothing in your world is disconnected from your spiritual attachment to Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit which is the very presence of God, dwells in your life as a believer. Amen, church? So every part of our physical story, every part of our micro-level story is connected to God in some way. And so being personally moved, being personally broken, does no good without a spiritual assessment of what actually is happening. And that starts with me. That starts with you. Nehemiah prayed to God and he said, forgive us our sins. We have sinned. Most of us, when we're personally broken, we want to start with the other person. If you'd just do this better, we'd be fine. Right? If you'd just stop acting this way, we'd get along just fine. If you'd just bring in more money, if you'd just get a better job, if you'd just stop talking, if you would just move out, if you would just, you fill in the blank, right? Spiritual assessment always has to start with me. Paul said, listen, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Right? Without a spiritual assessment of what's happening in our world today, we're going to make this about Trump and Biden. We're going to make this about black and white. We're going to make this about Republican and Democrat. Right? We're going to make this about rich and poor. We're going to make this about you and your husband. We're going to make this about your son and your daughter. We're going to make this about your boss or your neighbor. Without a spiritual assessment, we'll never make it about the thing that we're supposed to make it about. Being personally broken, emotionally moved, without a spiritual assessment of any situation that begins with you and begins with me, can't rebuild you. There's no rebuilding. Right? And then, listen, there's got to be a, there's got to be a pragmatic reality of what's taking place. For some of you, that's admitting my marriage is over. My marriage is falling apart. My bank account is empty. I'm being evicted. The diagnosis isn't good. Our world's in a mess. This black-white thing, this racial issue, goes much deeper than we ever imagined. Right? Whatever it is, if we're not honest about the reality that we're broken about and spiritually assessed, if we're just not honest, as Nehemiah said, I was cupbearer to the king. His reality was whatever he was moved about, whatever he had assessed that needed to be broken and had asked for forgiveness for, the reality was because of his station in life, it was going to be a very difficult uphill battle. For many of you, that's where rebuilding actually 
actually begins is moving out of denial and moving out of anger and moving out of blame and beginning to be honest about your circumstances. It is what it is and you cannot change your past. But man, you can rebuild the present. You can move forward, right? You can start over. You can be better. And those aren't, those aren't coach speak, right? Life coach speak. That's biblical speak. Paul says, the one thing I do is I forget what is behind and I press on to what is ahead to the upward call of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And for many of us, we pretend to do that. We do that in name only, but our heart, we've never actually, we've never actually moved on. And so I just want to continue the narrative. I just want to continue the story of Nehemiah uh, tonight as we go through this rebuilding idea. And I've entitled this sermon, this conversation, this speech, Informed. Right? Informed. How many of you ever, this will be interesting to see if anybody's willing to be honest, right? How many of you have ever participated in gossip? Right? And, and, and I already know that the people online were raising their hands, Right? How many of you have ever participated in gossip by believing what you were told? And how many of you have ever perpetuated gossip by saying something you were told? Right? The danger of gossip is that often it's woefully underinformed. Would you agree? Part of a story is no story at all. Reading a book and having read a book are two different things. If you've read chapter one of a 98 page or 98 chapter book and someone says, what are you, what, what are you doing now? Well, I've read, I've read book A. You haven't really read book A, you're actually reading book A, right? You get the difference. Being informed entirely makes a difference to a story. Would you agree with that? Makes all the difference in the world. Which is why counseling and therapy and all that stuff is difficult. Because how do you catch somebody up on 46 years of your story in an hour session, right? Which is why God is always your best counselor. Your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is always your best therapist because there's only one person who always knows your story, right? Listen, when you're trying to tell somebody, listen, that's why dating is so hard when you get older, right? Listen, let's be honest. How in the world, how in the world do you catch somebody up to 40 years of your life to where you feel comfortable moving forward with the next 40, right? And so when people meet and they're like, we're getting married next week. It's like, I get the impulse, but you might want to read more of the book, right? Because as that story begins to unfold, you realize that there's references in following chapters to previous books that have been written, right? And that can get you into some trouble, right? I think it's I think it's imperative to the Christian narrative 
that we learn how to move forward in form the right way. Right? I was studying this chapter and at a loss for what to do and how to move forward. And so last night when I, I took a drive, I opened my Bible app to get ready to listen to Nehemiah 2 again, hoping and praying that something would begin to click. And so when I opened it up, I realized, how, how many of you have the Version Bible app on your phone? Okay, if you don't, man, you should download it. It gives you a verse of the day, right? How many of you are really working at keeping your streak alive? Right? Right? I work hard at that, right? And then I forget, and my streak has to start over. So I'm in the rebuilding mode of my streak of checking, because it tells you how many days in a row you've connected, right? So I'm just rebuilding my my incredibly good broken streak, because I forgot one day, because I'm old and stupid, and it happens, right? And so I'm rebuilding it. And so last night I'm like, oh, it's after midnight. I can catch this day really, really quickly. And so I opened it up and God gave me 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm like, the Holy Spirit was like, this is the, this is the, this is the launch point that I want you to use for your sermon with Nehemiah 2. So that's what I'm going to do. And we're going to talk about learning how to be informed. So I've got you, hopefully you picked up a, 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 I don't know, do we give out notes anymore? Do we give out sheets of paper? All right, so if you got the version app, right, if you have the version app, you can always go to live events on it and click on a live event and then it'll give you the name of the church that's actually hosting a live event at the time of the service. Tomoka's on there and when you click on it, it's got all the sermon notes on it, right? So that's how you use the version app. When it goes to the menu and says more, you go to more, live event, you look for Tomoka, you click it. If it's the weekend, Joe's notes are up there. If it's Wednesday, my notes are up there. And that's how you get the notes for the service that you can add to. You can, you can type right into the app anything else that you want to add or say, like, I'm never coming back to Wednesday again or something like that, right? Or he's brilliant, you know, whatever, whatever you need to say, right? We just want you to be well informed, okay? So we're gonna we're, here. We're gonna take away. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you three takeaways from Nehemiah two that I hope you read before we got here because we're not going to read it all together. We're gonna read it as it comes up. So Nehemiah one, right? Nehemiah hears about Israel and he hears about Jerusalem and he hears that the city is broke down. He hears that after 140 years, Jerusalem's walls haven't been rebuilt, but the temple has. And so when he's told about what's happening in his home country, a country he's never been to, city he's never seen, but as a Jewish, as a Jewish person, here's what's happening in his home country, and he and he breaks down. Weeps and mass weeps and fasts and mourns and prays. And wants to move forward with doing something, right? So he prays. He does the first thing he should do. Listen, if you want to rebuild, you're going to have to bring prayer into what you're doing. If you go on impulse and you act impulsively and you haven't included God, Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man. The end thereof is destruction, right? Listen, if you got something to rebuild, start with your prayer. Nehemiah did. He ends with his reality. I'm the cupbearer. What's a cupbearer to the king, right? Cupbearer to the king was basically the guy that tasted every meal and tasted every glass of wine before it went to the king in hopes that the king could be protected from being poisoned. That's basically what a cupbearer did. So every meal, 
Every meal, every glass of wine, every taste of food, it was the cupbearer's job to be the sacrificial lamb for the king. A king who had enemies all over the world, had people who wanted to kill him. And guess what Nehemiah's job? His king, his job was to be the most loyal, the most loyal person in the kingdom. Because if the king, if, listen, if the cupbearer wasn't loyal, he had the greatest access to ending the king's life. You get that, right? His position, lofty and high, and you know was under the most, the most magnificent microscope in the world. Because if you can't find the betrayer closest to you, you're not going to live long as a king. And so Nehemiah was cupbearer to a king. A king who had no interest in restoring Israel. No interest in having the wall rebuilt. Ezra, written at the same time, a few years apart, tells us in chapter 4 that the Israelites had started to rebuild the wall. And when Artaxerxes heard about it, he put an end to it. Said, I don't want it built. He took the advice of those around the, around the country and said, we don't want this. And Artaxerxes said, stop. Now, Nehemiah's got to go into this guy who's scrutinizing his every behavior. And he's going to have to ask the king for permission to go do this thing. So we pick up Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 3. You got it? All right, here it is. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So from the time that Nehemiah gets told about what's happening in Jerusalem and his subsequent heartbreak, until this moment, four months. So for four months, he lived in his heartbreak. For four months, he lived in his prayers. For four months, he waited for this moment. Four months. We have a hard time waiting 30 seconds for the microwave. Right? We have a hard time giving our spouse a good night's sleep before we resume the argument. Because we want it fixed now. He waited four months. It says at that time when wine was brought for him, for the king. Right? A minute the wine is brought for the king. Cupbearer is officially on duty. Because now he's got to taste that wine so that the king doesn't die from poison, right? Says, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before because in Persia, it was against the law. It was against the law to be sad in the presence of the king. It's nice to be king, is it not? <laughs> right? If, you, if, if you're going to be in front of the king in Persia, you can't be sad. I think that's a rule I'm going to implement in my house starting tonight, right? So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? It's a little bit interesting to me that the king knows that Nehemiah is not ill. Because listen, if the king is standing there with a cup of wine, right? And he takes a drink of it to see if it's fit for consumption. And he's like, <coughs> it's fine, Okay, right? He's probably not going to take the cup of wine. It's probably obvious to the king if Nehemiah is not sick. So he says to the guy, what's wrong with you? You're clearly not sick. He says, this can be nothing but sadness of heart, right? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And here's what 
Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Because to be sad in front of the king meant death. And clearly he's caught. Verse 3 says, but I, listen to this, but I said to the king, now remember, Nehemiah's heartbroken over his country, heartbroken over his city, heartbroken over the broken wall, heartbroken over the situation, aware that our Xerxes put a stop to the rebuilding already, and now he's going to ask our Xerxes to send him back. You know he's on fire to do it. He's been praying and waiting for four months, and he gets caught in front of the king being sad, and the king says, what gives? Here's his response. May the king live forever. He's acknowledging what? He's acknowledging, I'm still, I'm still on your side, king. I'm still here to protect you. You can still count on me. Long live the king, right? I'm not here, you know, planning your demise. Long live the king, right? Treats him with the utmost respect and says, why should my face not look sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So he's standing in front of the king and now he's been caught and now he's told his story. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says. I want you to read this with me. Those of you that are online, you can read it as well. But everybody in here, I want you to read this with me. Right? If I speak in the tongue... Is anybody talking? Are you guys reading? All right. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging... Right? Here's a couple other verses I want you to hear. Proverbs 18, 20, 21. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Meaning, if you like to talk, if you use your tongue for destruction, you'll eat destruction. If you like to use your tongue and you use it for life, you'll reap life. Right? How about this one? Proverbs 18, 6 and 7. Don't, do you have Proverbs 18, 6 and 7 there? Right before it? If not, let's read this one. Paul writes this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Listen to this. This is what should come out of your mouth. But only, but only, everybody say only. Only what's helpful for building others up. Not justifying your argument. Not building your case. Right? Not justifying your behavior. But what we say builds up others according to their need, right? That it may benefit those who listen. How about this one? Colossians chapter four, verse six. You got that one right after this one, Colossians four, six, let your conversation always be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone, right? Listen, here's what I know about love or about speech. Love needs to always inform our speech. Always. Isn't that what Paul said? If I speak with the tongues of men and I speak with the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, all anybody hears is what? Noise. 
clanging gong, right? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. When Nehemiah stood before the king, he let love of his God inform his speech and said to the king in all humility, irregardless of the fact that he had a mission from God, irregardless of the fact that that king was a pagan king, irregardless of the fact that that king had already stopped the work of God by halting the work on the wall, here's what Nehemiah said. Long live the king. May the king live forever. Here's what I know about you and I rebuilding anything in our lives. At some point in time, we're going to have to speak. And if love does not inform our speech, we've accomplished nothing. I've been married 30 years. I've been divorced in the past. And I've counseled people in relationships for over 30 years. And here's what I know. Almost every relationship at some level, at some level, begins the erosion of love and trust because of the speech of the people involved. It almost always begins that way. I've made so many mistakes in my life. Most of, the, most of them, honest to God, most of them post my, re, my, my receiving of Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And honestly, I don't regret them. I don't live in regret in any way, shape, or form. But I do regret the way I spoke to my children when I was raising them when I was younger. Of all the things that I could take back, I wish I could take back some of the words and most of the tone that I took with the children whom I told every day that I loved because they're, a ch because they're adult children now. And I see the effect I see the effect of words spoken that aren't informed by love. And I know my kids, I know my kids love me. But I see the damage done to a daughter who was spoken to that way by a father who loves her. I see the damage done to a son who was spoken to that way. Now listen, I am thankful to God that my children know Jesus and know that now that that relationship between them and him is cemented, they're his problem now, okay? <laughs> and I know that he's never going to teach, talk to them that way. But I still have a 17-year-old girl in the house and she's the only one that's truly been raised by a father who's learned that lesson. And how many relationships, marriages are not dissolved because of an affair. They're eroded because of that language that gets spoken. Because our speech is so often not informed with love. It's informed by agendas. It's informed by justification. It's informed by anger. It's informed by hurt. It's informed. And listen, 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 listen. Nobody knows this better than I do that we always want to get our, we want to be heard. We want our side out, right? We've got pain we need to express.
listen, there are better places to do it than right with the person that's always hurt you. Because either Paul's true or he's not. If I speak and it isn't informed with love, it's only noise. Which explains why often when I was yelling at my children, they looked at me with blank expressions because they just didn't hear me. It's why when I've yelled at my wife, she has said to me, when you speak that way, I can't hear you, which just makes me want to speak louder, right? And begins to underroad or begins to erode the, the confidence. Listen, there are people in the world today that you don't agree with, that you don't even like, that you're never going to feel like toward those people. There are people on social media that you don't like and you hate what they say. If we're going to rebuild anything, we're going to have to learn to let love inform our speech. And it doesn't matter whether you say it, write it, or type it. Speech is speech. Let love inform your speech. Amen, church? How about let love inform how you handle what God gives you? Listen to Nehemiah 2. Let's read a few verses here. 4 through 9 and then 11 and 12. So the king said to me, what is it you want, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sad in his presence. He catches me, right? Now I'm in trouble. So he says, after I, I tell him my story, what do you want, right? I prayed to the God of heaven. I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servants found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it 400 to 500 miles away. And if he goes, he's never coming back, right? This isn't I need a week. This is I'm done being the cupbearer to the king. Because when I go, I go, right? The king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I said to him, more request. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me a safe conduct, a safe path until I arrive in Judah. He's the king. He could do that. And may I have a letter to Asaph, who's basically in charge of the wood, the forest, right? So that he will give me the timber to make beams so I can build the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and so I can build me a house. And because the gracious, listen to this, and because of the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the Trans-Euphrates and I gave him the letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now look at verses 11 and 12. So I went to Jerusalem. We moved the story right along. Went to Jerusalem. After staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I hadn't told, he didn't show up, guns a-blazing, right? He wasn't on social media promoting his arrival. He wasn't speaking out his, his big stance. This is what we're coming to do, Jerusalem. Prepare for the invasion, right? He didn't do any of that. He just showed up. And he was there for three days with no noise. And then he gets up, it says at night, with a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do. Verse 12, had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can preach, proclaim, if I can tell the story with God's gifting, and if I can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, 
And if I have a faith that can move a mountain, all great God-given gifts, would you agree, church? Amen? If I can, if I have all of that, but I don't have love, I have what? I got nothing. Here's what I know about love. It doesn't just inform our speech. It's got to inform the way that we handle what God gives us. I was a young preacher. Joe was a young preacher. We knew everything. We could fathom all mysteries. We could fathom all knowledge. We drank pots of coffees with professors of college till two and three and four in the morning just to prove that we knew everything. And then we wrote brilliant sermons and we went and preached, to ch- preached at churches of 30 and 40 and 50 people who'd been believers for years. And here's what we discovered. Those people didn't care about Jesus and we told them. And we told them every Sunday. And here's what I know. We didn't let love inform how we handled the gift that God had given us to preach. We used arrogance. We used sheer brute force of our words. We violated the first premise, let love inform our speech. Which led us to violate the second premise, which is to let love inform how we handle what God's given us. Nehemiah got everything to rebuild the wall based upon God's favor. Can I get an amen? Every good thing you've got to do the work of God today in the world comes from God. Can I get an amen? It is not your wisdom. It is not your knowledge. It is not your skill. It is not your genius. It is not your financial stability. Everything you have to impact the world for God in the name of Jesus is given to you from God. And if we don't let love inform how we use it, it's going to mean zilch in the world. Here's what Matthew 25 says. Listen to this. Again, it'll be like, this is, this is God's assessing and judging judgment at the end of the world. It'll be like a man who goes on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To the one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two and to another one, right? You got it. Each according to his ability. So he didn't give the guy who could only hand one bag, five bags, and set him up to fail. He gave the guy with the talent to handle five bags of gold, five bags of gold. The guy with two, two, and the guy with one, one. Each according to his ability. Then he left on his journey and trusting those bags of gold to those individuals. The man who received five went at once and put his money to work and he gained five more bags. for 17. The one with two of gold gained two more. But the man who had received the one bag, he went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hit it. Pick up the story, verse 19. After a long time, a long time, the, so the guy buried the, the gold in the backyard and left it there for how long? A long time. Which means he didn't pay an ounce of attention to what God gave him. Once he buried it, he moved on. Man, is that 35 minutes? That cannot be true, right? Cord's going to go crazy two weeks in a row. After a long time, right? After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them, right? His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant to the first guy. You've been faithful with a few things. I've put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Next one. 
He replied, well done to the guy with two who got two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now to the guy with one who buried it, he says this. The man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you're a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown. Gathering where you haven't scattered seed. Right? What a judgment of, this, of, the, of the owner, right? The guy gave him a bag of gold. And his assessment was, you're a jerk, right? And so you know what I did for the guy who gave me a bag of gold who's a jerk? Nothing. I hid it in the ground and I hid it in the ground. See, here it is that belongs to you because I don't want you to think I tried to fraud you out of anything. The master said, you're wicked and you're lazy. You're wicked and you're lazy. So he So you know that the harvest where I have not, you knew that I harvested where I haven't sown and I gathered where I haven't scattered seed. Well, then you know what you should have done? You should have put my money in the bank and made me happy because I could have got some interest on the deposit. He goes on to say, listen to this. This is the master to the servant, the recipient of his goodness. Take the bag of gold away from him. Give it to the guy who's already got 10, right? That's God's economy. You want to waste it? You want to waste it as a small church and do nothing with it? I'll take it from you and give it to a mega church. That's how God works. You want to waste God's gift? I'll give it to the guy that's already got more than you think he deserves or she deserves. Right? Give it to them for whoever has. Listen to this. Whoever has will be given what? Not less. Not parity. Not socialism. But to him who has... More will be given and they will have what? No wonder millennials don't like the gospel. No wonder they don't want to be responsible. Because the master cares about how we use what he gives us. Can I get an amen? He says this, because whoever doesn't have, even what they have is going to be taken from them. And that person will be throw them outside, worthless person outside, into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The individual's not worthless. They become worthless because they waste what God has given them. One of the best parts about Tomoki is we make it possible for you to not waste what God gives you. There is nothing but opportunities for you to serve. But let me, let me encourage you. If love does not inform your service, if your service is simply a hammer for you to get done, whatever you got to get done. The ends justify the means. No, they don't. Love justifies the means. Love justifies the words. Love justifies the actions. You're not entitled to do what God has gifted you to do without love. Because if you do, it produces nothing. Nothing. It's the same in your homes. It's the same in your marriages. It's the same in your relationships. If you take the good gift of love in your relationship from someone and you don't inform it with love, I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to give it to another. We got to be careful. We can say, oh, I don't like it. I don't like the way that God does that. He doesn't care. Because that's who he is. And he's infallible and he's perfect. Love has to inform the way that we handle God's blessing. And the last thing real quick is love has to inform our actions. Right? I'm not going to read all the Nehemiah. 
Skip down to, to 1 Corinthians 13, 30, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. You can read the Nehemiah story. He goes into Jerusalem, right? He goes into Jerusalem and basically he goes in and he, and he approaches the Jewish people who've been building the wall and stopped and he doesn't lecture them. He doesn't say, what have you been doing? This has taken too long. This should have already been done. He didn't do any of that. He sits down with them and he lets love inform his actions. And 1 Corinthians 13, 3 says this. You got it, David? Listen to this. Listen to these amazing actions. If I just give everything that I possess to the poor, to the poor and I give my, over my body to hardships, right? If I'm just willing to put myself into the grinder for God's sake, right? If I do all of that, bring that verse back up again. I, I didn't finish it. To, to give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I have what? John 13, 34 and 35 say this. Those verses are right there too. Here's what it says in, in John 13. Jesus, the night before he's betrayed in the upper room, says this. Read it with me. A new command I give you. What's the new command? Love one another. Right? There's no period in the Greek. Love one another as I have loved you. Love has to inform your action. If there was ever a human being on the planet that did not need to be justified in his actions toward humans, it was Jesus. He could have, he could have went to that cross and on that cross could have said, you don't deserve this. Those of you present, those of you in the past, and those of you that will look upon this in the future, you don't deserve it. But I'm going to do it for you anyway. Because if I don't do it for you, you're going to be lost forever. So I guess I'm going to do it anyway. And he would have been right. But love informed his action. It informed his speech first. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Love informed how he handled the gift of God. Because the Bible says that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. But instead he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He lowered himself to us. And he became a man. He became a human. He let love inform his gift to be equal with God. And he surrendered it. And he let love inform his actions. And he died on the cross for you and me. How many of us need to leave this place tonight, need to stop listening and watching online and start letting love inform what we do. Listen, we're ne we are never going to make strides in this world with people that we hate if we wait to feel love for people. Because when you wait for feeling to love, you miss the imperative of love, which is function. Love is always about function over feeling. Always. In the human world, we always want feeling over function. Not in God's economy. Because love is patient. And love is kind. It doesn't boast. It doesn't keep track of wrong. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't rejoice in bad things, but rejoices in truth. It always hopes... It always believes. It always endures. It never gives up. Because love never fails. 
your speech and my speech in the world today needs to be informed with love. It's patient and it's kind and it's not keeping track of wrong. It's not seeking our own. Our, our giftedness from God. The message from God to go to this mission and lead this ministry and do this Bible study and all that stuff. Go out into the world and make these changes. Man, if we're not doing it, being informed by patience and kindness and not keeping track of wrong and not seeking our own and not being arrogant. If it's not doing that, it isn't accomplishing anything. And for almost all of us, we need to do a better job of making sure that our actions are informed by love. Jesus said this, there's no greater love than one man has for another that he's willing to lay down his life for his friend. Informed. Let's be people that when we begin to rebuild, whether it's at home, in our relationships, out in our world, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, whatever social media platform, man, let's let love inform what we do. Amen, church? Amen. Listen, remember... We had a chance to feed 251 students in Jeremy, Haiti, right? The cost of dollar, the value of the dollar deflated 35% in Haiti in the last two weeks. We need $2,000 and we got a, we got a family that's willing to match your generosity. So I encourage you to give on your way out. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the day. Thank you for, um, helping us get out of here sooner so that parents, so parents can get their kids and and get out of here on a better time. I thank you for the, the, the hundred plus middle schoolers and high schoolers that are, that are ravaging the east end of our property. Father, we pray that for every seed sown, every, every hug given, every high five granted, every smile received, Lord, that the love and the light of Jesus has been shown to those students. And I pray, Father, for us to just have another day, another opportunity to do better at love. And how we speak, what we do with what you've given us, most of all, how we act in this world. Thank you for these people. Pray, Lord, that you would just use them to your glory and good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.